Thank you for listening to this podcast from Analong Presbyterian Church. You can find out more about this teaching series on the tabernacle by visiting www.analongpc.org forward slash midweek. Check the show notes for more information and links to additional resources. Well, we've come to week eight of thinking about the tabernacle. Um, it has, it's been more than eight weeks uh, together. Probably it's been taking us 12 weeks to get through the eight with one thing or another. Uh, but we've made our way through. There is, uh, the disclaimer in all of this is there's so much more that could have been said, uh, but we're drawing the line at eight weeks and maybe we'll come back to something in the future. Uh, let me ask you, anyone who took a build a tabernacle, how are you getting on? No one ready to display anything yet? We'll take it until the end of June if there is anything, but um, yeah, if you started, well done. <laughs> if you concluded, I'm going to give you chocolate cake, uh, and if you simply flicked through it, well, that probably turned you off, um, but there you are. Um, before we begin, I, I want to take us back to Saturday. Did you, did you pay attention on Saturday to the coronation? Few, very interesting, very interesting. Uh, you know, none of us have, pro- no, none of us are old enough to remember probably uh, the first one but did you pay attention there was no military uniform on the king what was he dressed like did it actually remind you of anything from last week a linen ephod i loved how they describe it as a nightgown (laughs) but it was linen the most pure and most natural whenever they put the gold on him whenever they put the the robe Who did he look like? Just like the Archbishop of Canterbury, a prophet, priest, and king. And whenever you looked at the the screen for anointing, did you notice the colors? Blue, gold, scarlet yarns, fine twined yarn together. Don't don't lose, and and he was on quite a lot throughout the morning on the BBC, um, some historian, I can't remember his name, but he, he, kind of every third segment he, he was on. And he described it as very Old Testament. And he was absolutely right because that's what it was. The divine rights of kings dates back. And whenever you even think about what we've been looking at in the evening with First Samuel and the anointing, well, I'm not trying to make anything out of the coronation that shouldn't be there, but it's just interesting to see everything being weaved through. And because we haven't seen it in 70 years, and even in 70 years, it was in black and white um, 70 years ago, you know, we probably don't get the sense of just how, how important. Um, I said to Beth, th- there's two amusing things happened for us. We, um, we knew that our girls, being girls, wanted to ask many questions about what someone was wearing, why they were wearing it. So we thought going over to Mullertown was not a good idea for the disturbance of everyone else. But we did do a drive-through and you know picked up our buttons and away we went home. But while I was there, the moderator of the Church of Scotland was doing his Bible bit, which was the bit I really wanted to see. Not because it was anything to do with Presbyterian, but the girls were in the kitchen. I rushed in and got the girls, and everyone was laughing because they thought that's what it was. It was the Presbyterian moment, and I wanted the girls to see the Presbyterian moment. But no, it was that moment where, where the Bible is presented, and you know those words are going to stick with me. I've probably known them for about a couple of years now, but 
you know, this, these are the lively, the, the royal law, the lively oracles of God. I don't think those should ever be reserved for a coronation. I think we would need to remind ourselves that these words are the lively oracles of God. Um, the second thing was no politician except Penny Mordant holding their sword. Um, no politician involved. All the church. The order of service by the church. And as I said on Sunday, everything that was sung was not of praise of the earthly king, but praise of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And as we look at that service, we should come back to the tabernacle. We should come back to the temple in Jerusalem. We should come back to Christ. And then we should go forward to the, to the day that's coming where we will be with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Because you can see the echoes because the coronation, what it's supposed to do is not to point us to a sovereign here on earth. With everything that we've observed, everything that we've learned from the tabernacle, as it points us through Christ to eternity, so should a coronation service like that point us through it to eternity. The echoes of the Old Testament are there, but in the hymns that were sung, in the scripture readings read, regardless of who read them, they all point to Jesus and they all point to the eternal kingdom. If only the British people would pay attention. Well, let's not be like them. Let's pay attention this evening as we finish off this little bit of the tabernacle. And we're going to turn, we're going to jump, and we're going to turn to Exodus 30 and verses 1 to 10. We're going to take two sections from Exodus 30, and that's going to finish us. Uh, we'll jump to the end of Exodus with a few, as normal, a few other passages in between. And, and really, we're looking at the last piece of furniture, and that is the altar of incense. So Exodus 30, verses 1 to 10, and here we read uh, these words. You shall make an altar on which to burn incense. You shall make it of acacia wood. A cubit shall be its length and a cubit its breadth. It shall be square and two cubits shall be its height. Its horns shall be of one piece with, with it. You shall overlay it with pure gold, its top and around its sides and its horns, and you shall make a moulding of gold around it. And you shall make two golden rings for it. Under its mouldings, on two opposite sides of it, you shall make them, and they shall be holders for poles with which to carry it. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and you shall put it in front of the veil that is above the ark of the testimony, in front of the mercy seat that is above the testimony where I will meet with you. And Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it. Every morning when he dresses the lamps, he shall burn it. And when Aaron sets up the lamps at twilight, he shall burn it, a regular incense offering before the Lord throughout your generations. You shall not offer unauthorized incense on it, or a burnt offering, or a grain offering, and you shall not pour a drink offering on it. Aaron shall make atonement on its horns once a year with the blood of the sin offering of atonement. He shall make atonement for it once in the year throughout the generations. It is most holy to the Lord. Amen. So let's go back to the very beginning. We're going back to the very beginning that uh, we, we're told whenever we look at the design of the temple, we have the most holy place and the holy place. The veil is what divides it. 
And yet in front of that veil will be something important that will be a, a sweet fragrance to the Lord. But at the center of it all, regardless of all the furniture, is the Ark of the Covenant. That's the presence of God. That's the whole reason why, why this tabernacle is being built. And everything from the fragrance that we will look at this evening to the table of showbread to even the altar out in the, in the courtyard, everything points the people to uh, the Ark of the Covenant. And whenever we come to the settlement in the land, David's death, and the temple in Jerusalem built, we read these words of the final resting place of the Ark of the Covenant. Then the priests brought the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the house, in the most high holy, or sorry, in the most holy place underneath the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread out their wings over the place of the Ark, so that the cherubim overshadowed the Ark and its poles. And the poles were so long that the ends of the poles were seen from the holy place before their inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from outside. And they are there to this day. The reason why I want to draw our attention to that is for that actually very last line. Yes, the, the ark will go and will continue to be the presence of God with the people. But it was always going to be a reminder. It was always going to be there until that day. And what I've done in that next paragraph, it's, you know, it's been 250 years by the time we hit this passage in 1 Kings, 250 years of history since Moses received the instruction not only how to build the ark, but the tabernacle and everything else. And then the ark finally being brought into the temple in Jerusalem. And going forward to the time of 1 Kings was written, which must have been before the destruction of the temple. That's why it says that the tabernacle or the Ark of the Covenant is still there until this day. The temple was destroyed in 586. And so the Ark of the Covenant rested in Jerusalem for 380 years. So for over 530 years, no, 600, hold on, 630 years, my mathematics, for over 630 years, the presence of God was with the people in the Ark of the Covenant. Now, I don't know if, if you've ever thought of that, the passage of time, how long it was there, the people of God knowing the presence of God in their midst, either in a tabernacle tent or in the temple in Jerusalem. And what I've done for you there is just a picture of Solomon's temple. This is the temple that Solomon has built. Um, gold, all inside gold. It has the same sequence as was in the tabernacle tent, a curtain dividing with the, the, the Ark of the Covenant in behind, the table of showbread, the altar of incense, the candlestick, everything, the, the basin for washing, everything that was needed only on a much bigger scale because of this, but yet right at the heart. And remember where the temple of Jerusalem is, it's on a hill. It's not just for the people in Jerusalem, it is to be the shining light, just as God's people were to be the shining light on a hill. And yet still in the heart of it, although it looks different, although it's, it's a physical structure that can't be moved, the Ark of the Covenant resides because it is the presence of God. But we come now to the altar of incense, because it, even though it is later coming in, is as much important as the other pieces, because it is the closest thing to that ark. It is the closest thing to the presence of God. And so in Exodus 26, 
we're told uh, that the lampstand was placed in the holy place on the south side of the tabernacle and then the table of showbread on the north side. And right there in the middle, there was nothing. Right there in the middle, closest to the veil, was space. And this is where we're told in Exodus 30, the altar of incense was put. We haven't looked at the inside of the tabernacle in a while, so there it is, right there, uh, put in for us to see. And that's what it looked like. You heard it measurements, it was a cubit square on top and two cubits um, tall. And we'll come to look at that measurement uh, in a moment. And so there it is, before the Lord, in front of the veil, to be this sweet fragrance unto him. Now, its construction was acacia wood, much like the table um, of showbread, and it was overlaid with gold, and it was decorated with moldings. And notice again that it is an altar. Do you remember whenever we looked uh, two uh, times ago at the altar that was outside, it had horns very practically so that the, uh, the meat wouldn't fall off, but it was... Um, we also learned that it was a sign of salvation where someone would cling to the horns of the altar so that they, they wouldn't be punished. But this is an altar, and although it may not be for the, for the burning of sacrifices, what is being offered, because it's an altar, must still be a sacrifice. It is a sacrifice of a recipe that we'll come to see in a moment. And like other items of furniture, it has rings on it so that poles can go in because it had to be carried, just like everything else. It had to go wherever God led the people. And so the bronze altar, the altar of incense, had its horns, and uh, that was on the four corners to prevent the burning incense from falling to the ground. And verse 3 there tells us that you shall overlay it with pure gold, and on its top, uh, sorry, and around its sides and its horns, and you shall make a molding of gold around it. It's very clear that there had to be this. I have to say, whenever I started reading, I said, why did the horns need to be there? But then it, it struck me, it is exactly this. It is a place of sacrifice. It is a place of salvation, just as the horns on the, on, on the altar uh, for sacrifice had their horns as well for salvation. And as we've said, the top of it was a perfect square, 18 inches by 18 inches, and then three feet tall. So it, it wasn't an overly big thing, but it was there. And it was significant for two reasons. Uh, very practically, first, it improved the atmosphere of the sanctuary. It's a heavy tent. Uh, remember, th there was curtains upon curtains upon curtains over it, uh, probably about a, three quarters of a foot to a foot thick. And it was going to be fusty. There wasn't much airflow getting in. There were no windows. You couldn't open a vent. And that, of course, was purposeful so that people couldn't sneak in. And so probably to just help the atmosphere in the sanctuary, to remind the priests of where they were. But secondly, the incense is associated with prayer. And this is what we read in Psalm 141, verse 2. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. So it seems, whenever we look at other aspects of Scripture, the purpose of the altar was prayer, reminding the Israelites that God would hear them and answer them from his heaven when they prayed. The very practical explanation of this is, is as the incense smoke went up, not only was it a sweet aroma, but it was a reminder of where the incense went. It didn't go down, it went up to the Lord. And so as the psalmist, 
here equates the incense with prayer so the Israelites would be assured that their prayers would go to the Lord, that they would be heard. And incense, as you heard in the Bible passage, was burned twice a day in the morning and in the evening there in verses 78, telling us that prayer is something that the Lord hears morning and evening and otherwise saying throughout the day. And the incense had to be specifically authorized and atonement then had to be made um, on the altar once a year. Again, that might surprise us, but if it is an, an altar of sacrifice, well then, yes, if it is something to be pure, if it is something that humans, if this is something on the altar that is going to be offered, but humans touch it, well then, there has to be a sacrifice made for the atonement of sin, so that what is offered may be pure. And what these truths do is they point us to the fact that prayer is vitally important. It is to be directed by God's Word and that our prayers are acceptable to God only in and through the atoning work of Jesus. And again, we turn to the book of Hebrews and we read these words in chapter 10. Therefore, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You see, we can approach God in prayer because of Jesus Christ. He is the one who intercedes for us and only prayers offered through the mediation of Christ are acceptable to God. That's why certainly when I pray, we, we don't pray in the name of God, we don't pray in the name of the Holy Spirit. Scripture teaches us we pray in the name of Jesus because he is the one who mediates for us. And so in Jesus' name, we pray. It is only because of him. So Christian prayer is never offered generically as if there's a generic deity um, or, or as if it's some superstitious ritual of somewhere up there, the gods, plural, of whoever we create them to be. No, they are to the Father, but they are through the Son in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we as believers must remember that it is not our words that make our prayers effective, but rather it is the perfect meditation of Jesus. I wonder do we ever think like that? Because sometimes we'll argue, I struggle to pray. Whenever, I, I suppose there's been a time in my life where I actually couldn't pray. It was the death of my father and, and I just found I couldn't pray. I didn't know what to pray. And I could have just thrown out words, but I, 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 don't, I can't explain the expression of it, but I just, I couldn't pray. And I remember a family member saying to me, because she had gone through the same situation a, a number of years before and she was older and wiser. And she said to me, you know, you probably can't pray in these days and that's okay because we're not just praying for you. We are praying on your behalf. And that's exactly what's going on here. Uh, my prayer life can be rambling. <laughs> it can go round and round. We're human. We get distracted. The phone rings. There's a noise outside. Oh, it's easier to do that. And we get distracted. And sometimes we ramble and go round and round in circles. It's no less meaningful a prayer because actually the prayer doesn't depend on us. It's the mediation of Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit. Doesn't mean we don't pray, of course, because Christ uh, is the mediator of what we pray. 
And so prayer is essential. But what we're told here is, let's not be so hard on ourselves if we are going round in circles. Let's not be so hard on ourselves if we think that we don't have the right words, because actually the right words are simply our human words. There's no language in prayer. There's no specific way to articulate what we say. Yes, there's, there's a progression of prayer, and the Lord's Prayer is very helpful in that progression, as well as being a prayer on its own. But we must pray, because our prayers are a sweet fragrance to the Lord, a sweet incense to the Lord. And, and that's why this last series has been entitled The Sweet Worship of God, because that's what the incense tells us, that it is a fragrance. And as it was a fragrance in the closest thing to the, the most holy place, as the incense went up, not only did it remind the people of, of where their prayers went, but it was also a moment of recognizing what those prayers meant to the Lord. And the worship of the people before him was a sweet aroma, a sweet fragrance. But as we've heard, the incense had to be authorized. So there's a specific recipe for this. So let's turn to uh, Exodus 30 again and just the, the closing verses of the chapter, 38, sorry, 34 to 38. And the Lord said to Moses, Take sweet spices, stacte, and ointa, or oinka, and galbanum, sweet spices with pure frankincense. Of each shall there be an equal part, and make an incense blended as by the perfumer, seasoned with salt, pure and holy. You shall beat some of it very small, and put part of it before the testimony in the tent of meeting, where I shall meet with you. It shall be most holy for you, and the incense that you shall make according to its composition, you shall not make for yourselves. It shall be for you holy to the Lord. Whoever makes any of it to use as perfume shall be cut off from his people. So this is a particular incense. It's not the latest fragrance. This is a holy thing. It can only be burned to the Lord. You can't just take a, a wee knob of it and burn it at home. No, it is to be placed on the altar before the presence of the Lord. And did you see what the recipe was there? Stakte, oinka, or oinka, cha, ka, galbanum, frankincense, and salt. If you haven't heard of the first three before, that's okay, because it turns out none of the commentators know anything about those either. They assume what they are. And going by, and I've put the names there on your list, the Hebrew word translated into English for stacte simply means a drop, most likely. It was a powder made from hardened uh, resin drops from the myrrh plant. In Hebrew, the word translated as oincha or ka uh, means aromatic shell. And so it could have most likely been a powder that came from scraping the shells of certain mollusks that were unique to the Red Sea. And when this powder was burned, it created a strong aroma, pleasing to the senses. Then galbanum was a resin that came from the stem of the ferula plant, which grows on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea and has yellow flowers and green fern-like foliage. And it preserves scent, allowing the other items in the mixture to retain their fragrance over a period of time. Uh, I had to look all of that up and put it in for you, so um, I've copied and pasted. I'm not going to deny it. I did not know that before this, just in case you think they teach us wonderful things at Union College. They do, but not the fragrance of the incense in the tabernacle. 
but it's the frankincense, the one that we do know. And, and frankincense is a resin that comes from the Boswellia trees that are grown in North Africa. And the Israelites would have come, would have had these, the Egyptians would have used them. And so they probably would have taken them with them because they were quite precious to the Egyptians. And remember what God said, whenever the people left, take with you, plunder um, the, the spoils of Egypt. And so the frankincense probably came with them. And uh, that's why they would have it. And so that was what made up uh, the, the incense and its recipe. But, but salt was also added. And, and there's a number of reasons for that. And so the Israelites added salt before the incense would be born. And there has been some debate regarding the purpose of salt, but its most likely explanation is in connection to salt as a preservative. Not just to preserve what might be on the altar, but actually to preserve the covenant with the people. Because in Israel's sacrificial system, salt was often added to offerings. And in Numbers 18 to 19, it refers to the relationship between God and Israel as a covenant of salt. And this is what's said to Aaron and what God and how God directs Aaron as his high priest. All the holy contributions that the people of Israel present to the Lord, I give to you and to your sons and daughters with you as a perpetual due. So this was how the Levites were going to be paid for their work and sustained to live. It is a covenant of salt forever before the Lord for you and for your offspring with you. A covenant of salt. A covenant that will last. A covenant that preserves. A covenant of preservation. And so to the priests, family, those Levites, God was making this covenant before them that he would be the one who would always sustain them. And it wasn't just going to be for today or tomorrow, but this covenant of salt was going to preserve this covenant for all time for the Levitical system. And so this meant that the Lord's bond with Israel was permanent. It wasn't going to disappear tomorrow. It was an everlasting relationship that it was God who was going to preserve it because God knew exactly who we were. We're people who, who wax and wane. We're people who will fall away and grow cold because we will be easily distracted. But this is God's covenant that preserves us. And it actually fulfills what he promises to Abraham in Genesis 15 of the number, you know, of this family, this people who will come from him. And so salt visibly reminded the people of this truth, that God would keep them. And so the people saw it on their sacrifices. And the priests offered it on the incense, just as it was being burned, to remind them and to, uh, to reaffirm their, their commitment to the covenant belief that God had for them. And so as salt uh, is a sign of God's will to preserve his people, so the Lord has promised that he will preserve a remnant because we know that things aren't going to go well for this people. We know they're going to be thrown in uh, to exile. And that's what we're told in Isaiah 10 and verse 22. Even though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. So he will preserve his people. He will keep a remnant for himself. 
and although the people don't know it yet, the salt is the reminder that, that God keeps his people. They will not be completely annihilated and broken off. And we know that the people of Israel regularly broke that relationship promise, but God would not break his. And so we should be thankful to the Lord for this and seek to be used of him to, to preserve his church through worship of him. So what does it mean? How do, how do we wrap all this up as we conclude this evening in the last couple of minutes? The worship of God by his design. That, that's ultimately what it has to be. And I want to take us to the end of Exodus because everything that we see comes to this moment. Numbers will pick up where quite literally Exodus uh, finishes. Leviticus kind of is set in the Exodus by the Levitical laws that will come out of it. Um, but the glory of the Lord comes to the people. And this is what we read there right at the very end of Exodus. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle throughout all their journeys. Whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. This is how God made it clear to his people what he required of them. Whenever they settled, worship would be made. But when it was time to go, they would go and they would set up camp, whether it be three kilometers down the road or five kilometers down the road. They would set up camp and they would once again gather around this uh, tent and this court and they would worship God. At the start of this series, I told you that there's two parts to the tabernacle. The part that we've just finished in Exodus 30 is the instruction that God gives to Moses of how to build the tabernacle. But then as we move through the book, we come to chapter 35 to chapter 40, where we've just finished just now. And that's the practical outworking. This is the people following the detail of the Lord in building uh, the, the tabernacle and the court. And as the book of Exodus concludes, we get this wonderful picture of what all this work was all about, the glory of the Lord among his people. But how did it come about? It was by his design. And what the book of Exodus does for us, it records for us how God led the Israelites out of Egypt to Mount Sinai by the cloud of his presence. That cloud descended on the mountain and later then, as we've just read, on the tabernacle and, and it's, it's a wonderful sight. The people have never been left on their own. They have seen the presence of God with them, either on the mountain or in the completed tabernacle, being filled by it. And so the Lord assures his people of his presence in the cloud by day and the appearance of fire by night. And it is good to imagine this wonderful display. I've told you before, I love fog. Maybe this is the reason why. But cloud... You know, there's nothing greater, not that many of us have the time to do this these days, nor do we have the weather to do it, but to lie back and just, just look at the clouds, look at their shapes. Uh, I was 
my Land Rover broke down in Malawi one time outside the post office and I was waiting for someone to come. I looked up and there was a cloud in the shape of the island of Ireland. I took a picture of it. <laughs> you can argue or disagree whether you think it's Ireland or not, but clouds are wonderful things. But, but imagine this cloud is the presence of God. Imagine it encircling the top of the mountain. Imagining it like the, the, the cloud and the fog that we've had in recent weeks enveloping the tent, and you know that God is there. But then imagine the light, the light that comes through. How that works, we do not know, but the light that assures the people that no matter what time of day or night it is, you know the presence of God is there by the cloud or by the light. He was assuring them that every day and night people could see, but they could also experience God's presence as he dwelt at the center of their camp and then in Jerusalem at the center of their religious life. And of course, both are the center of the nation. And unlike any of the other nations, God was miraculously there with them always. And that's what Numbers 9 and verse 16 assures us, that he was there with them always. But as we know, it wasn't stationary. The people of God were always to be on the move because he had made a promise to bring them into a land and so they would follow his direction. God would lead his people. Not only would he lead them into worship of himself by the design of the tabernacle, but he would physically lead them into the fulfillment of his promises and they would follow wherever the cloud went or the pillar uh, of fire. And there we have it in Numbers 9 and verse 23, at the command of the Lord they camped, and at the command of the Lord they set out. They kept the charge of the Lord at the command of the Lord by Moses. That, that, that's a powerful wee line. What did they do? It's a, it's a, I mean, what's going to happen on this journey with uh, lots of things, but here they kept the charge of the Lord. When the Lord said go, they went. They followed. They, they didn't debate. They didn't say tomorrow, but they kept. But also they trusted Moses as the Lord's voice to them, as the Lord's instructor, as the Lord's prophet to his people. And shortly the people of Israel would be headed to the promised land and the presence of their covenant God would direct them. But sadly, they did not always follow the Lord's direction. As much as we can be encouraged by these words and numbers, there were times when they went their own way, such as they, when they refused to occupy the land by ignoring Joshua and Caleb in Numbers 14. But we who by God's grace know Jesus as Lord and Saviour, as we now look into the future and as we look to this through Christ and what it means, we have great motivation to obey him because he continues to lead us and he continues to guide us. It may not be by the physical cloud, it may not be by the physical fire, but it is through his word and by his Holy Spirit. And one of the questions I've had come to me um, with our study in Acts is, how do you know the Spirit at work? How do you know if it is the Spirit? And you know, there's no answer. Don't, don't, don't have a heresy trial now. For me, a lot of it is just, this is the right thing to do. I don't want to say gut instinct. But there's something that you know without shadow of a doubt, this is it. 
Because the second question I often get asked is, how do you decide what to preach? You know, what, what series you do, even, even the tabernacle? And I say, I don't know. It, it, it sort of just comes to me and clarity comes. And I believe that to be the work of the Holy Spirit because I certainly couldn't make it up. And so the Spirit works in the everyday in the most natural of ways. There is not a day goes past in your life where the Spirit is not at work. The Word of God tells us that. But the work of the Spirit goes hand in hand with the reading of the Word of God because that's what we believe. Everything we need to know about God is in His Word. He has revealed everything we need to know about Him and about His plan of salvation. Anything else that we hear that is not uh, found in Scripture, well then, is not the truth. Because we are told that this is the truth, the Word of God. And so today we are still led by His Word and by the presence of His Spirit. And in the New Testament we find that Jesus is presented now as the fulfillment of this entire system of tabernacle, priesthood, and sacrifice, the three things that we've looked at. And in John's prologue at the start of his gospel, Jesus, we're told, is the Word who became flesh and literally pitched his tent or dwelt or tabernacled among us. And if the purpose of the tabernacle was to have Jesus dwelling in the midst of his people, an initial step, remember, that would uh, see a return towards Eden, Jesus was the true and better tabernacle who is elsewhere called Emmanuel, God with us. And we have that assurance in Isaiah 7 as well as in Matthew 1 and 23. See, the presence of God was in the midst of his people. The presence of God is still in the midst of his people with Emmanuel, God with us. The tabernacle points us to the certainty and comfort of salvation in Jesus and in him alone. This is why we worship God, because it is all because of and through Jesus Christ. Everything that we have read, every color, every item points us to Christ, but points us beyond to the heavenly home that has been made ready for us. And this is God's design for our worship of him as we await that day when he will bring us into his eternal presence. For as the writer of Hebrews 13 verse 15 tells us, through him, that is Jesus, um, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. We make sacrifice every day. Romans 12 verse 1, this is our spiritual act of worship. We are still a sacrifice in what we do through our service. And the tabernacle teaches us that as it is fulfilled in Christ as we await the day when we will be brought into the presence of the Lord. Once we came to Jerusalem, the tabernacle was no longer required. Once the temple was built, it was just the furniture. Uh, and even at that, uh, specifically the Ark of the Covenant that went into the temple. And you may ask, well, what happened to the Ark of the Covenant? Indiana Jones did not find it. Um, one of the books that I have been sort of dipping in and out of is The Essential Guide to the Tabernacle. It's funny, there's, there's no meaty book on the tabernacle. Uh, there's a lot of it. They have some interesting things to say about where the Ark of the Covenant is today. Um, apparently it's in a cellar in Mullertown House, if you want to go and find it. Um, the most likely thing that happened to the Ark of the Covenant 
It was simply destroyed when the temple was destroyed in 586 BC. There is no record of it being taken into uh, exile with the people. The list of things that are taken from the temple, the Ark of the Covenant's not included. Why? We don't know. Was it God's purpose that as the temple was destroyed, so the Ark was destroyed because this was what was going to happen. Seventy years the people were going to be away, and when they came back, the whole form of worship had changed. Synagogues came in after the exile, where people would meet locally, and they wouldn't be so much depending on the temple. But of course, the temple was rebuilt, but the glory of the Lord had left. The people knew that. There was no ark. There was no presence of the Lord. And so they had no instruction to build another one. And so therefore, it is much believed that uh, the ark was destroyed in the temple when it was destroyed by the Babylonians. There is a Roman general called Pompey who said that he had the ark. What happened, Pompey? Not the man, but the place where he lived. Well, there was a big volcano. <laughs> and uh, if you go to uh, Pompeii today, um, only, I think it's something like only a fifth of it has actually been excavated. So we'll be waiting a long time to see if Pompeii was right, but I don't think he was. The Ark of the Covenant is fascinating. The tabernacle, fascinating. Its purpose in Scripture is there to instruct us and to point us to Christ, to assure us that we are to worship him in a way that is proper and orderly, that is by his design, but also that the way to him is open. The way to God was always open through the people. They may not have been able to go behind the veil, but they were received by him through their sacrifice. And today we are still received by God because of the sacrifice of his son who makes intercession on our behalf. This is why we worship. This is what should give us joy in our worship because God is the one who has designed it for us, not to enslave us to it, but that actually we may enjoy him. And so as we finish, you have some questions to, to help you think specifically about that uh, fragrance, but also more generally about what we've looked at. How does your worship of God have a pleasing aroma to him? Our worship is still to be pleasing to God. And I suppose I was struck whenever I saw on social media just around the area how happy people were at the celebration of the coronation of a king and how much greater when we gather for worship should our celebration be of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords because of this very reason. Because our worship is to be a sweet aroma to the Lord. It always has been and it always has had to have been the people's response to God was this aroma. Is your aroma pleasing? Not your perfume or your aftershave, but how you approach worship. Do you have joy in your heart? I'm not saying everyone has to be smiling all the time, but I imagine we could be smiling most of the time. How we sing with gusto as Jackie Spence, now a minister, former Belfast City Mission worker, used to say, whether you sing like a nightingale or a gale in the night, it's all praise to God. Do we approach prayer by being attentive to prayer, even though we're led in prayer, never perfect, but yet realizing that in that moment we come before the Lord with Christ as our great intercessor? As we hear his word, do we sense the movement of the Holy Spirit that, that this isn't a sermon that's good for someone else, 
but that it's a sermon good for us because the Holy Spirit is working in us to teach us and instruct us. Is the aroma of your worship pleasing to God? And notice it is singular because if it is for each of us, then it will inevitably be for all of us as we come together in public worship. The second thing, how do you look back on the tabernacle and what the tabernacle has taught you and recognize a deeper meaning and purpose of our worship of God? And I suppose this is something that we picked up on last week, why it's important for us as to publicly worship God. And we know we can go to many different churches. We can go to many different Presbyterian churches and it'll all be done differently. Um, but even as we come, do, do we recognize why it has deeper meaning for us? I've explained why the service has been changed to the way I have, because there should be a time of approach before God in the first part of the service. Then we hear from his word in the middle, and then we respond. We respond in giving, we respond in prayer, and we respond in service. Hence why the announcements come after that as a way of response. The word includes the reading, the children's address, and the sermon. And of course, the approach is called a worship. Praise. And then that prayer of affirming who God is. Do we approach worship understanding why we do it and what it means to come before God? And has this tabernacle study helped you to see why we have to have that deeper understanding and meaning and purpose of our worship? And then that question, that how can question, how can greater understanding of the tabernacle draw you closer to God as you live for him? Because that's ultimately what the tabernacle is to be. It's to draw us closer to the Lord. It's not about learning interesting things. It's learning the meaning of those things so that we may worship well and live for him. Well, as we finish off this evening, let me pray for us as we respond to how God is teaching us. Our Father God, as we come to the end of this series there will have been times where there's been information that we haven't needed and there's even been perhaps some stuff that has been left out that we should have had but father thank you that you speak to each of us in your way and and if we listen we will hear you speak to us and we'll sense your spirit leading us and prompting us and nurturing us and so father as we look at at what is a, a key part of the story of your people in the exodus these over 600 years of recognizing your presence with them in a very real way. Lord, we ask that you will help us to learn why it is important to worship, why we need to worship, and why our worship needs to be a sweet and pleasing aroma to you, because you are worthy of it. May we never belittle worship, uh, because when we do, in many ways, we belittle the work of your Son on Calvary's cross. So may we always be mindful that we worship you because of Jesus and ever give a sacrifice of praise to you for that. So help us to really think through what we've been learning, to even go through the handouts and, and perhaps even listen or watch again to different parts of this series so that we may truly be challenged about what it means to come before you and to learn from you. So Father, hear us as we pray and as we commit ourselves to the worship of you, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.